0: Thank you, Pastor. Looking forward, Lord willing, to getting Kathy back tomorrow night. Our dog and I both are looking forward to Kathy being back. Very much so. And uh, appreciate your prayers in these last weeks as we have moved. Uh, again, we're up in Estero. Just can't stay away from Chick-fil-A up here. Uh, so we're nearby in the meadows of Estero, but uh, been hard at work. I was putting up some shelves yesterday, and and, uh, you know, it's been a while since I hammered anything. You had me down here, and
1: I'm becoming a real Floridian. I
0: picked up the hammer, and I thought, boy, that's been a while. But uh, thankfully, I hadn't forgotten how to use it. Anyway, thank you for your prayers. And I invite you to give your attention to God's Word as we, in our journey through the Gospel according to Luke, come to a passage which we were in just not too long ago as uh, Dr. Poland had preached from it. And I certainly don't intend to go back and undo any of that wonderful work.
1: It is a story with which we are familiar,
0: as it is, we find in this passage, one of the most famous of all short stories of all time, the Good Samaritan. And so we are at Luke chapter 10, beginning with verse 25. Listen to the word of God. You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. The word of the Lord stands forever. This is the word which by the gospel is preached to you. Amen. We're not really responsible for our actions because people don't really have free will. That's the conclusion of Robert Sapolsky of Stanford University. Where's Dan Nelson? In
1: a posting this week on
0: biz.org, not F-I-Z, but phys.org. org. This neurobiologist, Dr. Robert Sapolsky, said that after more than 40 years studying humans and other primates, that says a lot about the worldview that's at work here, <laughs> Sapolsky has reached the conclusion that virtually all human behavior is far beyond our conscious control, just like convulsions of a seizure, the divisions of cells, or the beating of our hearts, going on without us having anything to decide concerning those matters, so are other matters. He said this means accepting that a man who shoots into a crowd has no more control over his fate than the victims who happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. It means treating drunk drivers who barrel into pedestrians, just like drivers who suffer a sudden heart attack and veer out of their lanes. He says the world is really messed up. It's not the word he used, but that's the one I'm using. And made much, much more unfair by the fact that we reward people and punish people for things they have no control over. Sapolsky said, We've got no free will. Stop attributing stuff to us that isn't there. There you have it, end of discussion. The uh, intelligentsia has made its pontification.
1: Is it true? Are we really not
0: responsible? Or is there something more to life than that? Are our bodies just a result of molecules slamming around inside of our skulls, as somebody said recently that I was listening to, product of chemical reactions? Or do we need to think more about what it is that we ought to be doing in this life? Well, you're here today, and I assume that means you've made a decision about that. You've decided that, uh, yes, we have a mind that the Lord has given us, And they're important matters to decide. And there's a lot more to life than simple chemical reactions in a brain and in our bodies. The Lord Jesus is confronted by a man who is asking questions, but he's not doing it for the right reasons. He's not motivated by the right motivation. He is an expert in the law, which means that he himself probably is a priest who is not engaged currently in the ceremonial activities of the temple. But he knows the scriptures, he knows the law, and it says that he comes to Jesus for the purpose of putting Jesus to the test. Let me simply say this. God's word is powerful and effective. Even when our motives aren't what they ought to be, the word of God nevertheless is powerful and effective and accomplishes its purpose. So even though this man comes with less than pure motives, to say the least, he nevertheless gets God's word in response. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Is there any more profound question in all the world than that? Jesus, after all, when the disciples came back from having been sent out two by two, as they came back, they were all amazed that the spirits themselves were subject to them, the evil spirits, the demons that they had cast out. And Jesus said to them, you know, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What well, there's anything to be excited about it is that we have everlasting life. And so right on the heels of that and the other interaction that Jesus has with the disciples, so this so-called expert in the law poses this question to Jesus. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? What's your answer to that? What would you say to someone? Jesus responds, as he often does, by asking a question. What is written in the law? In fact, he asked two questions. How do you read it? Not only what's there, but how do you interpret it? What do you make out of it? Put it in the vernacular. And the man was ready with an answer. And according to Jesus, he answered correctly. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So, what we have is a question asked by an expert in the law, and he will pose another one shortly. Asked not with the right motive. His intention, in fact, is to entrap the Lord Christ. He's looking for a way to get the Lord Jesus to incriminate himself so that he and those like him can carry out the plans that they are laying for him. And so the Lord provides timeless answers to our deepest questions. Questions that everybody has, but answers that are timeless, in that here we are reading about this interaction that happened 2,000 years ago, but the response and all pertaining to it is just as relevant now as it was then, because God's Word doesn't change. It's not as if he's had to modify things as the centuries have progressed, and as we have become smarter primates tongue-in-cheek, in in parentheses, that uh, God would so alter his word. No, these answers are timeless. All of God's word is timeless. It's, It's firmly fixed in the heavens, we are told. That means that God's word is established. It's not going anywhere. That just as he is unchanging, so his word is unchanging. So in response to the question, Jesus asks questions, and he responds. But then he follows up. And who is my neighbor? Now, again, this could be asked sincerely. Somebody, you can picture it, can't you? Oh, oh wait a minute. If i got to love my neighbor as myself. Who's the person I'm supposed to love? Who is my neighbor? But Jesus turns all of that on its head, as we know, as we've heard wonderful messages on this before, and as we've read ourselves. That, uh, I'll just go ahead and jump to it. Jesus doesn't answer his question, who is my neighbor? But rather leaves him with the question, Whose neighbor are you? Isn't that interesting? All of this can be summarized with what we refer to as the golden rule, most clearly stated in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus had said, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, if you Google this, You will find, in response to your search online, that, oh, there are others who said similar things. Jesus is just pulling together other threads from other places. But what they won't tell you, by and large, is that what Jesus says is actually unique. Others had put it in the negative. Confucius, for example, had said, whatever you don't want done to you, don't do that to other people. Well, you know, that's okay. But that means, basically... If somebody's lying on the side of the road and they've been beaten by robbers, you could go by and say, Well, I shouldn't beat that man up as you walk on by. You get my point? Jesus doesn't say the same thing that others had said. In the Golden Rule, whatever you would wish that they do to you, do also to them. Because the motivation must be one of love. Loving our neighbors. And so in telling the story, he gives us this wonderful short story. Isn't it amazing? This is a you know, this every preacher in the world ought to be convicted. I think it was my practical theology professor that said, you know, in order for your sermons to be timeless, they don't have to be eternal. (laughs) You can say a lot in a short space. And Jesus demonstrates. Rather than continuing with this interaction, he gives this, he gives this parable. And what we soon realize is that this expert in the law, this, this lawyer, is not really the one who is performing the examination. Because, you see, any time we come to the Lord, even when we come with our questions that are of a skeptical nature, it really is God who is performing the examination. He's the one who discerns the heart. He knows our motivations. He knows us. And so the Lord Jesus is the one doing the examining. He asked the question, didn't he? What is written in the law? How do you read it? Now remember, the lawyer did indicate respect for the Lord Jesus. He referred to him as teacher. That's no small matter. But even so, Jesus being the teacher, demonstrates the appropriateness of that title. And, of course, Jesus affirms. It's like our teachers graded us in school, right? You have answered correctly, he says in the end. But look at this story. Look at how Jesus tells this story. Now, first of all, let us remember something of supreme importance. and You will hear me repeat this later on when we consider other parables. Don't lose sight of the one who's telling the story. You know don't forget about jesus in the midst of the story whether it's this one or the parable of the prodigal son christ is the one who's telling the story he is the one revealing the nature of these things and thus he is the one who is the source of all truth he is our infallible source as these words recorded and written inspired by god are our infallible source we can't go just anywhere and expect to get the right answers. Unless, of course, you're looking for excuses and then you can uh, you can go to a certain Stanford neurobiologist and get yourself off the hook if you're looking to justify yourself. But if you're interested in actually having eternal life and not justifying yourself, if you actually have an interest in knowing the one true God, then you're going to listen to what God says rather than what so-called experts have to say about him who demonstrate with their answers and pontifications that they neither know him nor do they worship him. Jesus speaks timeless truth because he is the source of truth. And he is the one who tells this story. A man, that's all we know. His name is not recorded. Uh, We don't even know really who he is. Coming down from Jerusalem, presumably a Jewish person. Jerusalem being about 2,500 feet above sea level. That's approximately the same elevation as Waynesville, North Carolina, in case you were wondering. And so when you travel from Jerusalem to Jericho, which is a relative short distance away, Jericho, I understand, is about 800 feet below sea level. To my knowledge, I've never been below sea level except when I've been out in the ocean and actually gone under the water. And that hasn't been very far. So this is uh, quite a drop in elevation. It's quite a journey to get down the road there. Some of you have made that journey, and you can tell me things about it that I don't know. But that's about all the description that we have. And, of course, he falls into with robbers. Not hard to do. place like that, pretty desolate. They stripped him. That's the first thing it says. That creates all kinds of issues, not the least of which is shame. He is stripped. He is beaten. He's robbed. And they left. They left him there half dead. I've uh, on occasion been a part of a group that has acted this out. I remember the most memorable time this occurred was in London, in Hackney Downs, London, England. We were uh, there uh, doing uh, ministry among uh, Muslim peoples, primarily Kurdish people in that area. And um, so we got our little group together. There were youth involved and others, and and we acted this out. Oh, you wondered what part I played. (laughs) I was the Levite. I got to walk by on the other side. It's amazingly how natural that part felt to me. You know? How easy it is just to keep walking. And I realized while I was acting it out in front of all these people that were watching, I thought, this is not a hard part to play. I had no words to memorize. Didn't have to, you know, no lines. Which uh, I began to realize at that moment why they had given that part to me. It's kind of like the Boy who came home from school, you know, and he was in the school play. And he was telling his dad all about it. They were going to be putting it on soon. and His dad said, "Oh, that's great." He said, uh, "What part did they give you?" And he said, well, "I'm playing the part of a husband who's been married for 47 years." And the man said, "Oh, son, don't worry. One of these days they'll give you a speaking part." <laughs> I am so sorry. <laughs> See, I've got a head filled full of useless information like that. All that to say, if you play the parts of the priest or the Levite in a skit depicting this, you don't have to do anything except just move over a bit, give some space, and walk on by. That's all that's necessary. Here are those who supposedly are schooled in the things of the Lord. Who would have known that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. But you know the human mind is capable of performing all kinds of mental gymnastics just like Dr. Sapolsky in four decades of study could come out with findings to help us think we're really not responsible for our actions. Our own minds are capable of rationalizing away, and so all you really have to do is just define who our neighbor is so that whoever it is that we're ignoring, we just put them in that category of them not being our neighbor. This struck home to me once when I was listening to a man who was talking about loving our neighbors as ourselves, and it was a lecture, and at the end of that lecture, there was opportunity for questions. And one of the questions was asked by a student who was younger than me. Simply this, he said to the particular man who was speaking, won't use his name, a historian, noted for his uh, expertise in 19th century American history. And the student said, well, how did this apply in the United States when we had slavery? Why did people who had slaves not love them as their neighbors? And the man said, oh, that's a different category. And boy, I remember yellow and red flags going up in my mind. And I thought, you know, this is not hard. Everyone is our neighbor. But it happened in this country. It happens today. We decide who our neighbor is. Our neighbors can be the people who agree with me on an ideological level. They agree with me in the area of politics. If they're opposed to me, I don't have to consider them as my neighbor. And I can spew all kinds of things concerning them. And we can rationalize away our responsibility. But we come back to the question that Jesus asks in the end. Because we know what happens. Whereas the others came, they saw, and they walked on by. The one man came and saw, and the pattern is broken. Instead of walking on by, he had compassion and went to him. That's the difference. And this man was a Samaritan. And probably when Jesus made that assertion, there likely could have been gasps in the crowd. People, mouths gaped open maybe. A Samaritan? What would priest and Levite went by but a Samaritan is the one who stopped Samaritans were despised I mean they were on if you think of a social totem pole they were somewhere on the level below perhaps a dog now our dogs are on a high place on our totem poles but back in the day they were despised animals and Samaritans were somewhere probably below that in the minds of Jews of all people stopping to help this man a a Samaritan, but he did. He applied what was the equivalent of medicine to him. He helped him. He soothed his hurts and he even placed him on his own animal, took him to an inn,
1: ensured that he would
0: be taken care of, even spending out of his own purse to make sure that it happened. Take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Tim Keller has said, we instinctively tend to limit for whom we exert ourselves. We do it for people like us and for people whom we like. Jesus will have none of that. By depicting a Samaritan helping a Jew, Jesus could not have found a more forceful way to say that anyone at all in need, regardless of race, politics, class, and religion, is your neighbor. Not everyone is your brother or sister in faith, but everyone is your neighbor, and you must love your neighbor. And so all the rationalizations are out the window as Jesus conveys this story and of the deed of the Samaritan. The true neighbor shows mercy according to need without regard to repayment. There's no indication that the man who was harmed had any ability to repay whatsoever. He had been robbed. He had nothing in his possession, even stripped of his clothing. So the Samaritan not only helps him, but he does it without any expectation of repayment. And that's helpful for us in our own exertions, perhaps, as we seek to help others. Rather than doing it for what we might think we will get out of it, we do it because the need is there. And so very quickly, I want to say this. The Lord Jesus not only is our ultimate source of truth, as I proclaim, he also is our ultimate example. Because he's not one to just simply tell the story, is he? This is the one who went about doing good, healing those who were sick, giving sight to the blind, enabling the deaf to hear, even raising the dead to life, casting out demons by those who were subject to them. Jesus went about doing good. He's the one who demonstrates to us this very real notion of helping even though he got no physical benefit himself. And ultimately... Who are we in the story you know I was once cast as a Levite. think of the priest think of the robbers think of the Samaritan or think of the man who was subject to the robbers think of the innkeeper think of the animal perhaps a donkey now I'm beginning to think of another part I might be able to play There's no question about the Lord Jesus. He is the one who comes in for the rescue. He is the one who finds those who have been subject to the cruelties of this world. Here we are under the curse of sin, stripped, naked, beaten. Not only half dead, but dead. Completely incapable of doing anything to extricate ourselves from our circumstances. Who is the one who laid aside everything to come into this world and to perform the rescue that no one else could do? As he died on the cross and would a short time hence, giving everything, dying, and subjecting himself to that ultimate humiliation of burial. It is the Lord Jesus who is. Our ultimate rescuer the one who is our example and as we follow him if our lives have been transformed by him that means that by God's grace and the work of his Holy Spirit we're being conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus what is a Christian
1: the word literally rendered could mean
0: little Christ or one who is like Christ or one who follows Christ that's our primary identification. And so if the Lord Jesus is the one who selflessly in laying aside everything to perform the rescue, should that not in some, albeit imperfect way, but nevertheless, be readily apparent in us that we too would be willing to lay aside to help? You know, we have missionaries working. We've got over 600 missionaries in the Presbyterian Church in America serving in hundreds of countries around the world Sharing the gospel, they're planting churches, they're doing all kinds of wonderful things. But in the process of serving the Lord Jesus, they're also loving their neighbors. This church has given over $70,000 to assist with rescue efforts in the Ukraine. Do you know how that money is being utilized? It's, it's being given to Christian servants who are willing to cross the border into the Ukraine to go to areas where we have churches that we're working with to make sure that those monies and resources are being given to people who are able to distribute them on the ground. They're not going to a government program. They're not being converted over and being used for other things. But these people who are crossing the border and doing it on a regular basis are subjecting themselves to danger. They're going into a war zone. Why? Because we follow Jesus. When uh, the terrible nuclear accident occurred at Fukushima in Japan years ago, you know who some of the first people were who loaded up bottles of water in the trunks of their cars and went north, potentially exposing themselves to dangerous levels of radiation so that people in those areas could have clean, safe water to drink? missionaries and church members. In Japan, where only a very small percentage of the population professes Christ. Why? Because we are followers of the Lord Jesus who went headlong into danger in order to perform the ultimate rescue. You see, Romans 5, 6-8 tells it all. While we were still weak, helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. you see it? Here he is, inserting himself into the danger, undergoing it for our sakes. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.10 just a couple of verses later, says it even more poignantly, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. The Lord Jesus rescuing us and the rescue being performed for a people who wanted nothing to do with God, who are running away from God, and yet, He sent his only begotten son into the world to die for us. So you see, you can't lose sight of Jesus in this story. Now, whose neighbor are you?
1: If this is real to
0: you, if Jesus is more than just a name that you profess, a way of associating yourself with other Christians or for whatever purpose it may be, if this is really real to you, then I ask the same question that Jesus asked of you and of me. Whose neighbor are we? Who was the neighbor in this story? The one who showed mercy. You see, people who have received mercy are the most willing to give it. We prayed today, didn't we forgive us our debts as you or as we forgive our debtors? We, above all people, understand what forgiveness is. And thus, we're able to extend it. So I ask you the question, Christian, Christ follower, whose neighbor are you? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice in knowing that we have only to look to you to know what real love is. We look to you to know what grace is. For while we were sinners, while even we were your enemies, you have given your Son and you've reconciled us to you. Oh, Father, please cause this truth to penetrate our thick skulls. Bless us, O Lord, in spite of the sin nature that still rages within us. That you might overcome that nature within us daily. That we would be more and more conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus. That we wouldn't simply look and keep walking. But that we are a people and would be a people who, having received compassion, would have compassion. And would go to the aid of those who are in need and demonstrate to the world just who Jesus really is. It wasn't the religious experts. It was the most unlikely of people. And so, Lord, as we look in the mirror and as we look around this room, it seems to me like we qualify. We're just as unlikely as anybody. Use us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Grace alone. What else could we say? Say it with me if you're able. And let's sing. Go forth in the love of God our Father, and in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, always and forevermore. And everyone said together, Amen.